Welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. We're going to talk about health today, but we're not going to talk about it in the usual way we've been talking about health and debating health. Do we have access to doctors? How is our insurance claim? Are we doing enough to make people pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Are we making people take responsibility for their actions? Because public health thinkers like our guest, Dr. Sandro Galea, argue that opportunity to live in a safe place, live in a stress-free place, ability to access opportunities for ourselves and our children, those are really among the most powerful influences that create a healthy society and so healthy individuals. Sandra Galea is a dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He is the author of many scholarly articles, book chapters, 13 books. He is an epidemiologist. Dr. Galea is coming to Town Hall to the Forum, newly reopened in Town Hall, the building itself, Tuesday, May 14th, 7.30 p.m. And his book is called, Well, What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health. Hello. Hello, Dr. Galea. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Can thank you hear you. me okay? I hear you well. Very good. And you can hear me well. Can hear you very clearly. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you for doing this. Yeah, I hope you don't mind that our Mariners beat your world champion Boston Red Sox in the last few games. Well, every once in a while, we need to let somebody else win. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that's how it will surely be with this season, too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> my niece and my sister are Bostonians in their heart, even though they live out here now. And oh, the, I see. And so her, you're, used to, you're used to ribbing people about it. Oh, and, you know, I'm used to getting ribbed, especially by her husband, who still lives there, my, <laughs> my niece's dad, who is like, you know, never... Never foregoes a chance to talk about how bad the Mariners are and how great the Red Sox will always be. <laughs> Bostonians, Bostonians take their sports very seriously. Yeah, very that, seriously. That is very. You know, true. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Bostonian, so it's, uh, I, I, I tread carefully. I make sure I only, I, I only say pos- make positive murmurings about their sports teams. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So you, um, you grew up in. Or much of your young life in Malta, not all of it. That's much right. No, yeah, I, I, I immigrated to Canada as a teenager. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, was Malta a healthy place? It's a great question. I, I don't think Malta was a particularly healthy place, and I don't think it is today. It's um, my my recollection is that uh, some of the data about health in Malta are among the worst in the region in both uh, Middle East, North Africa, and Southern Europe, uh, but. The entire Middle East, North Africa, Southern Europe area is uh, has, for example, some of the highest obesity rates in the world, and uh, with that come some of the highest rates of cardiovascular disease and uh, stroke and uh, other associated health conditions. So it's not. I, I do not think it's a particularly healthy place. No. I ask in part because of uh, you were writing in your book well that uh, one of the few movies you got to see, and you quote in the book, was Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. That's right. And you talk about uh, Spock's sacrifice of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. But in most societies, and I guess Malta is one of them, that doesn't seem to be how we arrange our social structure. Yeah, I think uh, I think we have uh, we can learn a lot from Spock, and uh, I do think that uh, we do not think enough about the needs of the many uh, as opposed to the needs of the few. And um, 
and, and there, there's a valuable lesson there. Obviously, I was uh, quoting that movie as a way of making the broader point. But um, we uh, often segregate the needs of the few and say they can be out of sight and out of mind. And one of the arguments that the book tries to make is that you cannot do that, that uh, not infrequently the needs of the few will influence the needs of the many. And the obvious example of, of that, of course, is uh, uh, the case of vaccination and uh, you, we talk about herd immunity, and herd immunity simply means that if you cannot vaccinate a large proportion of people, you are exposing the many to a risk, even if the few are unvaccinated. And you've seen that across the country in cases like measles. And the reason we've had measles outbreaks is because we've had pockets of unvaccinated children. So the few will affect the many. And, and there are important lessons there because it means that we should move beyond our approach of thinking about the needs of the few as acts of charity. It means that we need to move beyond that and recognize that the needs of the few are inseparable from the needs of the many. And that is a real reframe in how we structure our societies. You're right. Well, you also tell the story in your book about the parable, about the, the friends who were, uh, one was rich, one was poor, but they were friends. And in the end, the inability of the rich person to see beyond his charity uh, doomed his his monarch that he worked for to probably to disease and that the, the idea being that again if we don't work with, beyond charity we end up with these um with with problems for everybody yeah that's right and i suppose the argument i was trying to make in the book is um twofold is that number one is that we need to take a compassionate approach to promoting health and well-being among all people. And the compassionate approach means that we recognize that uh, we want to promote health because it's the right thing to do. And ultimately, we need to tackle the foundational structures that generate health. That's one argument. So that, 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 that is a uh, what I might consider to be a higher-order argument. But there is a second argument, which is perhaps a bit more of a self-serving argument. And the, the second argument is that unless we pay attention to the needs of the few, we, the many, will end up reaping negative consequences of that. So at, at both the level of it's the right thing to do and it's the smart thing to do, we should be looking at health as a public good and something that we need to invest our collective efforts in. So we have a little controversy here right now in a media story, which Seattle, like every city and all across the country, has a high homeless population and and in, yes. our, in our city, where the, the gap between wealth and poverty and the gaps between affordable housing or available housing um, are widening, a uh, documentary came out, three-part documentary. And the third part, many people say, blamed the homeless. Seattle is dying, and it's dying because these homeless people are trashing the streets, shooting up in public places, taking over parks, and um, living in their tents on street corners around mountains of trash and human refuse and the argument that was being made in the um in the documentary was it's because seattle policymakers and many liberals um just uh, talk about compassion rather than responsibility they talk about well we need to be compassionate and care for these people and and then the opponents say, no, you're not asking those people to take personal responsibility. Seems like in a nutshell, 
what you're what you're arguing about in your book. It is exactly what I'm arguing against in my book. It's, um, I think uh, that line of argument is mistaken. It's mistaken for a number of reasons. Number one, the notion that individuals can simply take responsibility and act differently suggests that individuals have full autonomy and that our range of a full range of choices is always available to us. And that's simply not true. The book talks about how our experiences, our opportunities, and our health are generated across the life course, which means that your, Steve, your and my experiences today, our opportunities today, are a product of our entire life, which means a lot of that are a product of experiences over which we had no control, things that happened to us and circumstances we were born in. Once you start thinking that way, you recognize that it is simply incorrect and not fair to put on people the full weight of presumed autonomy over all their actions and ultimately our responsibility collectively is to recognize that we want to maximize opportunity and to maximize opportunity by creating the forces that move people away from the disadvantage they were born and now to do that you need to recognize that we have a collective responsibility that we are all responsible for all and that ultimately is what's at the heart of compassion True health, you write, comes from social and economic justice. It is a product of systems that create opportunities for all to live a life that is unconstrained by the forces that generate sickness. What are the forces that generate sickness? Yeah, I, I believe that the last phrase you just read uh, captures exactly what I was just saying now. The forces that generate sickness are the forces in the world around us. They are the places in which we live. They are the water we drink, the food we eat, the places we inhabit, the places where we work and play. They are the choice set that we have. They are the health of the people around us that ultimately influence who we are on a day-to-day basis. They are what we know to generate sickness and the humility we need to have about what we do not know. And they also include luck. They also include luck that generates health and sickness in many of us and that we frequently do not acknowledge. They include the forces around us that generate hate and conversely, the forces of love that counter hate. And they are our access to money, power, politics that ultimately shape our experiences and the resources that we have access to. Those are essentially all the forces that generate health around us, and they are, I argue, what we need to talk about when we talk about health. I didn't hear you list uh, spending money on medicine in that. I didn't hear you list access to doctor's visit or, for that matter, access to affordable health insurance, which is what the debate about health in this country has come down to. No, I, I, I didn't mention those factors, not because they're not important. We, we all, unfortunately, will at some point get sick and need a doctor, and we want to make sure that we have access to the right doctor when we do get sick. But it, as you correctly say, that is what we spend our entire health conversation in this country about. Our entire health conversation really is about medicine to cure us when we get sick and having access to health insurance to be able to afford that medicine. So there are an enormous number of voices talking about that. And my argument is, yes, we should talk about that. But ultimately, that is a very small part of what generates health, and we should talk about everything else that generates health. And if you were to ask yourself this question, would you rather be healthy and avoid seeing a doctor, or would you rather spend all your time in the doctor? I think most people would agree. They ultimately would rather not see a doctor at all if they cannot all avoid it. So with that mindset, it, uh, it puzzles me why we do not spend our time, more of our time, talking about the forces that keep us healthy rather than spend as much of our time as we do talking about what we should do once we get sick. 
You must watch television. You must see the ads that go on for much longer than ads usually go on for various diseases and uh, d various drugs that purport to help solve yes, some aspect of some disease. And they go on very long with the, uh, the litany of side effects. Uh, but uh, playing lovely music and smiling people are shown so that at the end of that ad, you sort of discount the side effects and instead think, well, I should get that drug if I have this disease. That's a little bit like the way we are facing our healthcare crisis, isn't it? It's a little bit like a, a magician who's distracting us with one hand while with the other hand, um, well, sucking yes, up millions of dollars. Well, I, I think your use of the word distraction is a very is a very good use of the word, because it is not cost free for us to spend as much time as we do talking about doctors and medicines. Ultimately, talking about doctors and medicines all the time is distracts us from these other core forces and these other core factors that we need to also be talking about when we talk about health. Ultimately, we have only we have relatively limited conversation space. We have relatively limited space for our imagination about these issues. When you look at data. Data are relatively clear on this, that medicine and healthcare generate about 5 to 10% of our health. Our behaviors and our lifestyle generate another 20, 25%. The environments and the economies within which we operate is another 30, 35%. And our genes probably are 10 to 20%. So we are spending, if you think about it, our entire conversation capital, to use that term, on that 10%, on the 10% of medicines and doctors. Now, you might say, well, it's just conversation. We can talk about whatever we want to. That's fair enough. But we don't only talk about these factors. We also spend all our money on these factors. We in this country often say, well, we uh, we spend more on health than any other, any other country in the world. It's not true we spend more on health. What it is true is that we spend more on healthcare and on medicine. We do not spend money on these other forces. So part of what I'm trying to do with the book which is why it's called what we need to talk about when we talk about health, is rectify that a little bit, recalibrate our conversation. It is not an argument against medicine or doctors. It recognizes the place for medicine and doctors, but it is recognizing that that place is a curative space, and I am much more interested in you and me being healthy for as long as possible. When public health doctors like yourself enter into this realm of arguing that equality, justice, fairness, um, economic opportunity are what create pathways to health. You enter into the world of politics and you get big pushback from that, from many political forces and, and uh, you know, social forces. So, right, you get that pushback. You do, you what do, do, you, you do. What do you think about that pushback? Are they missing the point? I think, uh, I think that pushback... I think that pushback is misguided. In the book, I quote Rudolf Virchow, who said um, medicine is politics on a grand scale. And I, I rephrase it to say health is ultimately politics on a grand scale. And I, I make the argument that health is inextricable from politics. When you recognize that health is a product of place and power and money and the people around us and love and hate and how we think about the many and how we think about the few and that health ultimately needs to be seen as a public good, you cannot separate that from politics. I mean, the question is, what is politics? Politics ultimately is how we choose to allocate resources. And all of this is about the resources, not just material resources, but our cognitive resources and our conversational resources. So health 
is politics on a grand scale, and I think we should make no apology for that. And in terms of spending, of course, especially since the Reagan revolution, right up to the present, there is a political force that says, we do spend money on social good through Medicare, through Medicaid, through what many people term welfare, through even the earned income tax credit, which, which you cite in your book. And they say, well, we are spending too much, and that is hurting, and then pick your, pick your current um, issue. Too many regulations, it's hurting innovation, right. entrepreneurship. <laughs> but they point to the money being spent. Is that money misspent, or is it, is it in your opinion, still underspent? Are well, we underspending? I, 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 would, I would answer it in two ways. Number one is I would benchmark us against other uh, high-income countries. And against other high-income countries, we uh, underspend. We underspend in what I would call social services that generate health. And there are good data on this, uh, and uh, so, so this is not really a matter of opinion. It's uh, it's objectively we underspend compared to these other countries. Now somebody can say, well, okay, this is American values, and we're okay underspending because that's just what we're like. But then you look at the health indicators, and our health indicators are worse than all other high-income countries. In the past 25 to 30 years, we have fallen behind by about five years in the life expectancy. We've fallen behind in health indicators compared to all other high-income countries. And just in the past three years, as you know, we are witnessing the first period of sequential three-year drop in life expectancy since the 1918 flu pandemic. Not since the 1918 flu pandemic has have we had a three-year in a row downturn in life expectancy. And I, and I, ask, I ask myself, and I think we should ask ourselves, is that really the country we want to live in? Is that the country we want our children to grow up in? And I think nearly everybody would say no. So when you put those two together, it gets us to a place where we can say, well, we should probably be rethinking how we think about health. Well, why is, why is that occurring? Why is that drop occurring? Because the people, there are many people that say, well, it's occurring because, and then again, the litany of issues that, that they, people raise, individual action, um, uh, people are not responsible for their actions. Also, the others are coming in and bringing with them diseases and therefore need to be kept out. Or um, people have poor, make poor choices, bad values, and they spend money on other things. Well, let me, let me try to answer that by way of anecdote. The, um, here's a question. Should we, as a country, care about health systems in West Africa? Now, I think one can make any number of nativist arguments why we shouldn't care about health systems in West Africa. West Africa is far away, and we should let West Africans deal with their own health systems, and uh, on and on and on. Of course, you and I both know that Ebola in New York City and in Dallas has hit our shores, and that was a direct result of health systems in West Africa. The point I'm making is I'm using an extreme example, is that this notion that we can wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and protect our health, and as long as we are, we invest the money in ourselves, we are going to be as healthy as we want to be, is simply nonsense. Our health is intertwined. Your health and my health affect each other. Where we live affects both our health. And a world where health existed in isolation is long gone. So even if one does not want to invest because it's the right thing to do, we have to recognize that we have to invest in our collective health simply because we have no alternative. You called global climate change one of the great 
health crises of our time? I think absolutely it is. I think uh, global climate change is one of the three most important shifts that we're going to be living through in our time, the other two being urbanization and global population aging. And global climate change is going to affect everything about our health. It is going to affect our health from an infectious disease point of view, a chronic disease point of view, from a mental health point of view, and it is affecting our health billions of people at a time. Now, the question is, do we really think that we as individuals can insulate ourselves from the effect of large-scale processes like climate change? It strains credulity to think that we can, which of course then takes us back to this notion that we should be thinking about health as a public good, as a collective, as something that we need to collectively invest in to make it better so that it can, we can improve health for all of us. Of course, that's what you just said is based on an assumption that there are people who will agree that it is a problem worth confronting. And you talk about science in this book and belief systems and the different kinds of belief systems. I mean, there is a whole coterie of people who deny that it exists and are in power based on that denial. So, you know, well, how do well, you some, address them? Go ahead. In some respects, in some respects, I actually think that um, we do not even need to get into the argument about whether or not we agree or do not agree about human, human cause climate uh, change. I think if we can agree simply that we care about our health, if we can agree simply that we think our children should be healthy versus not healthy, then we should simply ask ourselves empirically, what are the forces that are making our children less or more healthy? Then let's take one example. We know that experience of a disaster or traumatic event will result in mental illness among many people. That's science. So once we accept that, once we accept the fact that Trauma or disasters will cause mental illness. And the question is, what's causing trauma or disasters? Well, taking another step back, disasters are ultimately climatological and they're caused by, pertur by perturbation in long-term climate. Once you accept that, then you need to say, well, changes in long-term climate are causing more disasters, which are causing more trauma, which are causing more mental illness. So once you, once you work backwards from the very simple, near-universal premise that we all care about our health and we care about the health of our children, you have to address their fundamental causes. And it is inescapable that changes in climate that are causing more of these events is something that we should worry about. And, and I think we can have that discussion, and I think we can agree on that, without even touching whether or not climate change is caused by humans. I, I, hear, I hear hope in that statement, but I don't know. I mean, I, there's so much denial that you don't, as a public health official, you must deal with these issues in conferences, but also maybe in public policy. You run up against people who just don't um, entertain that notion in the first place. Can I you... do, I do, I do, and uh, you know, and, uh, and I expect after you air this show, I'll get some nasty tweets uh, directed at me. The um, what will they I, say? I, They'll say what? Stick to your own corner. If you, if you uh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I've gotten a lot of uh, stay in your lane. Um, the, the, my, my, simple answer, my simple answer on that is, that's fine, that's fine. I, uh, I have to believe, and, and experience has given me confidence, that the majority of people are um, reasonable and well-intentioned, that the vast majority of people are willing to embrace what is patently right when, when the facts are presented to them, and hopefully in the way you and I are having this conversation. So overwhelmingly, I think... Uh, most people are willing to change how they think about when they think about health, hearing this kind of argument. Now, 
are, are there going to be people who are going to say nasty things? Absolutely. But in the, in the arc of time, my, my money is on people who are on the side of right. The arc of time. You know, part of this book talks about justice as health. Um, and, um, and you talk about freedom and health. And that brings to mind, as you write about, the whole notion of, just to, just to make it a conflagration between us, just, you know, reparations for African-Americans in this country, for black people in this country who have continually registered lower in health um, statistics than white Americans because, as you argue in the book, and because the statistics show us, they have continuously been um, in places and under factors and under oppression and you know racism and legal, legal constraints that have kept them in areas of poor health and under regimes that lead to their poor health. So how do how do we just just with justice address that in the present day? I think there is no question that we have a responsibility to remedy the sins of our past that have resulted in in glide paths to poor health for generations upon generations of particular groups. And you mentioned African Americans as one of those groups. The when 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 you realize that health is a product not just of today but also of yesterday and not just of one person's lifespan but also of her predecessors then you realize that a a real a compassionate approach that is rooted in in social justice needs to grapple with the forces that have unjustly disadvantaged groups now the political solutions to those forces are often complicated and they require real serious thought and discussion to make sure they do not have that something we do does not have unintended consequences but having said that it seems to me like the first step is to be honest and say society we collectively have done things that have created unfair disadvantage we have done things that have deepened and steepened that disadvantage and that a compassionate approach one that's rooted in the principles of social justice should remedy that should undo it and let us together once we accept that figure out what the steps are that we should take to remedy it you talk about restructuring the edifice i mean what you're talking about when you deal with these issues is restructuring a, a political economy that allows for you know the one percent huge forces against that can you make logical arguments to people who are entrenched and either hoping that they will be part of the 1% or that they are and do not want to give up their power? I think um, that there are abundant arguments for um, why we may want to restructure to create a society that's more equitable where where everybody has the, the uh, opportunity to live up to their potential. The arguments against that line of thinking tend to be at core self-serving. They tend to come from um, groups who have benefited under a system which advantages some and disadvantages some, and who, as a result, are not uh, do not wish to give up any of those advantages, and and that, to to some extent, is human nature. Uh, and one hopes that rational argument that's grounded in shared values. And I do think that uh, this is a country that is, at core, built on values of fairness and values of equity and values of creating opportunity set for people to be able to live up to their potential who are willing to work hard for it. That within that, there is space for a restructuring the edifice to maximize people's 
lived potential. And this is where I think health can come in because health is, in many respects, a universal value. I think this is where health can come in, that if we recognize that a an edifice that is structured in such a way that it does not allow people to reach their health potential is unjust. And as a result, it is on us and it's on all of us to do what we can to undo that. Why'd you put that caveat in there? Who are willing to work hard for it? Well, I was, I was trying to... Uh, anchor it in what I think are universal American values. I think uh, uh, I, 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 I don't think that equity and equality are the same thing. I think equity and equality are two very different concepts. And uh, an equity approach would suggest that um, that we level the playing field such that such that those who wish to work hard and maximize their potential are suitably rewarded. That that may make for inequality, but that's okay. That's inequality that is uh, grounded in equitable uh, in an equitable architecture of opportunity. I think the two are, are separate and, and it's okay. I think frequently in uh, in the public conversation, the two are conflated. And I think they're conflated by people whose interests are in not advancing equity. You said you spent a lot of your um, working life uh, dealing with trauma in other places. You worked with Doctors Without Borders. Where did you go and what did you see specifically? Where were you and what did you see that shaped this thinking? Yeah, I was in Somalia uh, with Doctors Without Borders and uh, at a time in the mid to late 90s when uh, Somalia was um, uh, recovering from a civil war. This was a few years after the Black Hawk Down incident. And um, Somalia was riven by um, trauma and conflict at the time. And that um, fueled a lot of my interest in trauma. And I think what, but what really stayed with me from the Somalia experience was a deep and abiding passion in wanting to understand the upstream forces that generate health. And when, when I was there, I was doing medicine and I was doing, I think, as much good as any doctor can, given those circumstances, but I was haunted by the question of what happens when I leave? Will there be another doctor? Maybe she will come and she'll be good and take care of things, but then what, then what? Ultimately, I was deeply impressed by this question of how is it that a society needs to be structured so that it does not generate poor health to begin with. Now, this was a fairly extreme example where I was in Somalia, but then I find myself, through uh, immigrating twice um, in the United States, a country which I love, where my children are were born and are citizens, and I find myself in this country saying, this country has fallen behind on health compared to all other uh, high-income countries over the past 25, 30 years. This country is going through a period where our life expectancy has been dropping for three years in a row. And I feel like we can do better. We should want to do better. And then the question becomes, well, how do we do better? And we can start to do better by talking differently about health. I was struck by one of your arguments about uh, in the book, well, about what health is and isn't. And uh, that it is love and it is hate. And that hate is a, is a determiner of health in a society. It is hate, hate, and I've written quite a bit about hate. Hate fuels, hate fuels trauma. Hate fuels separation. When you fuel separation between people, you create the space for all manner of marginalization, all manner of direct effects that affect people's health. Hate fuels uh, discrimination. It fuels segregation. So I do think that hate is a fundamental determinant of health, and it's antidote 
love is something that we should talk about much more when we talk about love. You talk about, uh, you quote St. Augustine and you say, love should be fervent to correct and love that is fervent to correct, you write, the injustices that underlie poor health reveals itself in action. It pushes to dismantle structures that allow hate to spread and build new ones that safeguard health. I mean, we've had, um, we've had people arguing since the Reagan era that they are using love. Uh, love of the fellow man and his need to pull himself and herself up by their bootstraps to, uh, you know, to promote their ideas, which have, have nothing else undercut the spending on the healthcare system in this country. Uh, what's the logic, what's the argument you give to say your love is not the love we're talking about? I think that's the, we, we, we have made the mistake of thinking that charity is is a sufficient form of love and uh the, the the you see that manifest in many ways in this country you see it manifest for example in uh in philanthropy that says we are a generous country and we shall give a large amount of money to people who are more needy than, than us but this is why i urge a compassionate approach not a charitable approach a compassionate approach ultimately to to quote martin luther king which is what you were quoting earlier is asks what is the edifice that generates the injustice, that generates the vulnerability to begin with, and how can we, how can we fix the edifice? The, uh, so love really is, should, be, should be honest, and it should be grappling with the question, how do we generate the most health for most people? And that is not through simple charity, not through giving, to quote Martin Luther King, giving a beggar a coin, but through asking, why is the person a beggar to begin with? And that applies, you quote Augustine, which is, who says something similar, that really asks us to, to grapple with harder questions. And the harder question is, how is it that we have structured our society to create marginalization, to create injustice to begin with? These are, these are harder questions. It's much easier to simply say, let us allow an unjust, in unjust systems to proliferate and then give people some of our extra cash. Do you think these are um, issues that are so hard as to be intractable, intractable in America? No. Or do you no. think... You don't. You don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. And if, in, in, in some respects, I think you can say that uh, writing a book like this has to come from a place of deep optimism because uh, otherwise, why would I bother, right? It's uh, the... Uh, I, I write from a, from an optimism and a belief in the capacity of fellow humans to think differently, to think better, to understand what generates health and to wish to do something to change it. So I'm optimistic. I am optimistic that we can create an even better world. It shouldn't be lost in this conversation that this is the healthiest time in human history to be living. Even as we're having these downturns, we are we're now regressing a bit. But in, uh, in the arc of time, we are doing better and better. And my, this is a call for us to do better yet. We have achieved much, but there's so much more we can do. We can do so much better. But would you point to other nations who have better statistics and, and look at some paths they have followed? Or is this a uniquely American step that has to be taken? Well, I, 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 um, I'm reluctant to say America should be like country X because every time 
you say something like that, somebody will point out, well, country X is different and these in different ways. And that's fair enough. I think there there should be a uniquely American path, but I think it's a uniquely American path that is informed by the humility to know that we can learn about particular steps from different countries. Absolutely. We, I, I do not understand why we would not learn from what other people have done and adopt it to our own circumstances and do better. I would, I would here challenge us to rise to the promise of American exceptionalism and say, let us take the best things that our countries have done and do even better. You quote the UN Human Rights uh, um, Commission that every country should have a standard of living adequate to provide health, which is as broad as what you're talking about in terms of what wellness is and what we mean when we talk about being Absolutely. well. But, you, but, but but don't you want that as well? I mean, we all want it, don't we? Yeah. Well, what I was struck we should, by... We should want that, right? Yes. Yeah, I was struck by what you reminded me that Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his uh, 1944 uh, election, 1945 uh, State of the Union, I guess, uh, said uh, right. we should have a second American Bill of Rights. Say so, No, if it's a FDR's uh, point was that we should have freedom from, we should have freedom from disease, freedom from premature death. And we 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 privilege the notion of freedom too when often the argument comes around america to saying well i want the freedom to do the following and and this is not an argument against freedom too but we do not think enough about the freedoms from i want the freedom from dying unexpectedly in my car and we have achieved that freedom we have reduced motor vehicle fatalities enormously over the past 40 years that is a that is a hard one freedom from. And I would like my children to have freedom from premature death. I would like everybody around me to have freedom from unnecessary disease. And the only way to do that is by changing how we talk about health so that we can we can invest in creating a society that generates health. Well, I'm glad you're optimistic. I am optimistic because it's better than the alternative. Well, I don't know. I was, I was reading an article about the de- decline of sword, fin- sword ferns in our area and how they are disappearing and no one knows why, and you could add that to starfish and dolphin and insects and probably someday birds. It's hard to remain optimistic in the light of how quickly the world is changing. Well, one of my favorite aphorisms is that, uh, and this, this I didn't write this, somebody else wrote this, that optimism is a form of political resistance. And I, uh, I think that's true. I think it is, it is a resistance to the negativity that is implicit in a zero-sum politics. I think optimism says we can do better and holds our feet to the fire and asks of us to do better. All right, doctor. I appreciate you taking the time. That was a, that was a great conversation. I appreciate it. That was a great conversation. Thank you for talking. Thank you. And we'll see you in Seattle. It was, you, you read the book thoroughly. I, I, I deeply enjoyed you asking me detailed questions that show that you read it very well. So thank you for doing that. All right, good. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. Take care, Steve. Bye-bye. I did read the book thoroughly because it's an important book, offers an important way of thinking. Dr. Sandro Galea will be at Town Hall Seattle at the Forum, newly reopened in Town Hall, May 14th at 7.30 p.m. His book is called Well, What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health. You know, if you go to the website for this podcast, at length with Steve Share, just search that. You'll find all sorts of annotations, links to other sources, links to public health, in this case, public health articles, statistics. I hope you'll look at it and find it useful. I also hope you will consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Let other people know about this program. 
and the conversations we are having with guests who come to Town Hall. Don't forget you can also listen to shorter versions of these conversations and interviews with other people who are coming to Town Hall done by some great Seattle area thinkers and journalists. It's called In the Moment, hosted by Ginny Palmer. I hope you'll check that out again wherever you find your podcasts. And we will talk to you again at length.